Our next presenter is Professor Carly Anderson. She was an instructor of Biblical Hebrew here at BYU for many years. She's now working on a PhD in Religious Studies at Arizona State University. She's a significant scholar in the field of Temple Studies. We're pleased to have her here. Her, her topic is enthroning the daughter of Zion, the coronation motif of Isaiah 60 through 62, Professor Anderson. Oh, one, sorry. That we have about 10, oh, sorry. We have about 10 seats down here if you'd like to come down. We have several, we have five here, one, three or four around there. If you'd like, please come on down. Sorry. Good morning, can you hear me okay? I'm shorter than everyone else, so. <laughs> Um, the, my presentation is um, Enthroning the Daughter of Zion, a coronation motif in Isaiah 60 through 62. Um, Isaiah 60 through 62 contains powerful and evocative poetic images describing the future redemption for Zion. Viewed by most scholars as a complete unit, the pericope encapsulates and even thematically resolves events and depictions of many earlier passages in Isaiah with his message of eventual peace and salvation for Zion and its people. This essay will argue that Isaiah 60 through 62 possesses a literary motif representing the rites of an ancient coronation. The text employs figurative language that calls to mind some of the most culturally common elements of ancient coronation ritual. Much has been written about the symbolism of Isaiah 60 through 62, but while allusions to cultic practices, sacred festivals, marriage, fertility, kingly, and priestly symbols have been acknowledged. The concept of a complete coronation motif that connects these allusions together has not been proposed. The basis of this essay is that thematic elements of enthronement ritual, either practiced or understood in ancient Israelite culture, are represented through imagery and allusion in the received text of Isaiah 60 through 62. So this essay will examine um, 10 elements that are attested um, from Israelite or other ancient coronation ceremonies. And they are ritual humiliation, ritual rebirth, the granting of new names, anointing with oil, the bestowal of special clothing, a crowning, a royal procession, sacrifices, a communal meal, and acclamations. The rites occur for both the personified woman Zion as well as the inhabitants that comprise her. This coronation imagery reinforces and enhances the literal message of Zion's salvation in the passage. In doing so, the picture of her forthcoming salvation is coupled with royal glory. So first, ritual humiliation. In many ancient Near Eastern coronations, a process of ritual humiliation took place for the prospective regent. This humiliation symbolized the termination of the original order or the former life of the prospective regent and the forthcoming change in their status. The rite could include ritually enacted derision, combat, beatings, or even a drama depicting death. In some instances, the rite was meant to symbolize the triumph of the king over the chaotic forces of the cosmos. Combat and death could also symbolize the primordial chaos, so that the subjugation of enemies paralleled the regeneration of the cosmos. Benson notes that during the Babylonian Akitu festival, the king's royal insignia are taken away and he's boxed on the ears and pulled on the ears by the priest. Egyptian installation rites included ritual combat, followed by the burial of a defeated old king and his subsequent resurrection in the person of his successor. Ritual combat preceding a royal ascension is alluded to in several of the Psalms, as well as some of the prophetic texts. Um, Psalm 10, 110, as you see here, is generally accepted as an enthronement text um, and is a good example 
Uh, Yahweh has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the manner of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand crushes kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He fills it with dead bodies. He crushes the head over a wide land. Um, similar language can be found in Psalm 21, as you can see up there. Um, Isaiah 60 and 61 contain multiple allusions to the notion of humiliation contrasted with the state of impending honor to which Zion is ascending. Language reminiscent of the ritual appears first in Isaiah 60.10, where Yahweh explains, For in my wrath I smote you, but in my favor I have had compassion on you. This violent, combative term, smiting, is contrasted with the compassion in much the same way a monarch would be ritually humiliated and then rejuvenated in the enthronement process. Isaiah 60.12 continues the theme of language with combat. For the nations and kingdoms which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly desolate. Isaiah 60.14 depicts the children of Zion's humiliators as bowing and paying homage at her feet, creating a reversal of humiliation that's replaced with obeisance. In Isaiah 60.15, the reversal continues. Instead of being forsaken and hated so that no one passed through you, I will set you up for an eternal majesty. Um, a joy from generation to generation. Isaiah 60, 18 described the changing circumstances as well, where violence and crushing are used to describe Zion's former conditions. The vivid words call to mind the ferocity of combat. Here again, though, the emphasis is on Zion's change of status. In Isaiah 60, 20, Zion is informed that the day of your mourning will be complete. The language indicating a fixed time arrangement adds nicely to a ritualistic flavor of the imagery. And a similar contrast is found um, in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, where the speaker announces the setting up of Zion's brokenhearted and imprisoned people. This pronouncement is followed by a bestowal of a headdress, oil, and a robe, which parallel royal paraphernalia, as will be discussed further below. Uh, ritual rebirth. Rituals of rebirth represented a new life, new identity, or regeneration for the recipient. Rix and Shroko point out that a king could be ritually reborn in a number of ways, including being swallowed by a monster, acting like a newborn baby, being endowed with divine qualities, going through a burial ceremony, or simply being reawakened. The notion of rebirth could also be represented implicitly through rituals of ablution, anointing, receiving a new name, or a bestowal of clothing. A.M. Hocart notes this idea in the Egyptian images of kingship, where the king is represented on monuments, as you see here, as being suckled by the wife of the principal god. Comparable images were used for the dead to illustrate their, re their rebirth. They were conceived and born, Isis suckled them, they became gods. Um, and a late Bronze Age poem from Ugarit portrays a similar notion, as you can see up there, evoking the image of a goddess suckling a royal child at Baal's request. So the image of a prospective regent portrayed as a young child or baby is also attested biblically. Again, Psalm 110 uses imagery of birth. Your troops will be willing on the day of your battle. You shall rule in the midst of your enemies in the splendor of holiness. From the womb of dawn, you have the dew of your birth. Isaiah 9, 6 also employs such imagery. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The birth imagery is followed by a pronouncement that the government shall be upon his shoulders and a bestowal of several titles implying kingship. These representations of a suckling child bear a striking resemblance to the imagery of Isaiah 60, 16. Zion, depicted earlier and throughout the passage as a group of people or a grown woman, um, is suddenly given the characteristics of a newborn babe. You will suck the milk of nations, you will suck the breast of kings. Um, the abrupt shift in Isaiah's change is perplexing, and the suckling imagery 
here has generated much critical and interpretive speculation, ranging from identifying it as a haphazard redaction to an awkwardly created metaphor. However, when one considers the coronation motif present in the passage, the suckling imagery actually fits quite nicely into the flow of the passage. The personified Zion is reduced to a suckling child who is nourished through the wealth of kings and nations. In connection with ritual rebirth, the reception of new names or titles is a common element of ancient Near Eastern coronations. Mesopotamian and Egyptian kings received new names at their accession. Royal renaming also appears in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Joseph of Egypt appeared to receive a new title as part of his rise to authority. Rix and Sroka note that, that several Israelite kings appear to have had birth names and regal names, though it's not certain whether the regal names were bestowed at their time of their ascension to the throne. Also, they're not explicitly in a royal connotation. Abram, uh, Jacob, and Sarah all received new names as part of their covenantal relationship with Yahweh. In Isaiah 60 through 62, Zion is granted multiple name-like titles as well, symbolizing her status. Often, the old name is contrasted with a new one to emphasize the change that is taking place. The renaming process is applied to all aspects of the conceptual Zion, including the buildings, the inhabitants, and the symbolic woman herself. The first name, pronounced in Isaiah 60, 14, is articulated by Yahweh, but is actually to be pronounced by Zion's former afflictors. The titles, the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, express a sense of custody and belonging. In Isaiah 60, 18, specific elements of the city are singled out. You will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Again, Yahweh designates the names, but Zion is the one described as giving them voice. Isaiah 61, 6 recounts the next title, which is addressed to the city's people and you will be called the priests of Yahweh, the ministers of our God, it will be said of you. The use of these titles is particularly intriguing since they're usually reserved for members of the Israelite cultic priesthood. In Isaiah 62, four, Zion is given an additional set of names. I delight in her, Hephzibah, or Beulah, married, which this time connotes marriage and divine affection. The names are bestowed upon Zion's land and the personified woman herself. The final group of titles occurs in the last verse of the passage, concluding the theme of renaming established in the Pericope. Yahweh articulates that the ends of the earth will address Zion's people. They shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. Zion will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. These attributes together form a rich image of both a sacred royal queen and a sacred royal people. And the next two are anointing and clothing. As an act of investiture, anointing with oil was generally reserved for those with unique power or social status, such as kings and cultic priests. It usually preceded the bestowal of special clothing meant to confer the authority of kingship or priesthood. Anointing with oil is a common element of ancient Near Eastern kingship rites. Uh, Wingren notes that the Sumerian king was described as having been anointed with oil from the life tree, and a Hittite text mentions the fragrant oil for a coronation. Anointing oil is well attested in Israelite coronation ritual and poetry as well. Saul, David, and Solomon were anointed with oil as part of their royal investiture, as were at least three other kings in the biblical text. An anointing with oil appears in 61.3. A group identified as the mourners of Zion received uh, the oil of joy, uh, Shemin Sasson in Hebrew. Uh, the phrase Shemin Sasson is significant. Young notes that the phrase appears only one other time in the Hebrew Bible, in Psalm 45.7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. The unique nature of this phrase, so closely connected to kingship in Psalm 45, suggests that its presence in Isaiah 61.3 could also be meant to convey the idea of a royal anointing. In investiture rites, anointing and clothing were often closely associated. This is true for the anointing and clothing imagery 
of Isaiah 61 as well. Although anointing is referenced in a single verse, its placement at the very center of the pericope is probably significant. The imagery is complemented by an additional reference to the bestowal of clothing found in Isaiah 61.10. Ceremonial clothing was an integral part of the cultic and regal accoutrements anciently as well. Rix and Stroka point out the, that the Egyptians employed this during the rites of the said festival, um, and uh, where the king donned a ceremonial garment. O.R. Gurney notes an example of investiture in a letter from Hattusilis III, a Hittite king, in which he refers to the royal vestments necessary for his succession rites. A Babylonian text includes a similar idea, equating the sovereignty of the chief god with his royal robe and crown. No examples of royal investiture at a coronation are explicit in the biblical text. However, there are a few possible inferences to special royal clothing. Um, Ezekiel 26, 16 refers to the princes of the sea who come down from their thrones and lay away their robes and put off their broidered garments. 1 Kings 22:10 mentions robes put on by Jehoshaphat while sitting on his throne. And Isaiah 22:21 describes robes used to invest governing power. Although not specifically within a coronation context, the clothing is closely connected to kingship. Ringer notes the lack of royal investiture in the Hebrew Bible, but points to the robes of the high priest described in Exodus 28 as a post-exilic copy of the royal robe. In keeping with the enthronement motif, Zion's inhabitants are given clothing in the passage. In Isaiah 61.3, uh, a mantle of praise is bestowed upon them. Isaiah 61.10 includes another reference in which the speaker declares that Yahweh has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in the mantle of righteousness. The clothing reference here works well as symbols of joy and redemption, but are also remarkably reminiscent of rituals of investiture that add nicely to the motif of a royal coronation. Crowning is perhaps the most identifiable aspect of coronation ritual. Royal headgear associated with kingship has a long and venerable tradition. In fact, the term coronation comes from the Latin coronare, which means to crown. The reception of a crown is present in most ancient Near Eastern enthronement rites. Pharaoh, as a sign of his leadership, received the iconic double crown. The Hittite ceremony is regarded as including a crowning, as is the Assyrian ceremony, where the king receives a crown in the temple of the goddess Inanna. In Israelite tradition, Joash receives a crown during his ceremony, and in Psalms 21.3 speaks of Yahweh bestowing a crown upon a monarch's head. The headdress appears in Isaiah 61.3 and 61.10, and also in Isaiah 62.3. Three distinct images are used for crowns. In Isaiah 61, 3 and 10, uh, the term pe'er is used to describe the headdress, and uh, Brother Belknap explains pe'er very nicely, just, just last presentation. Um, and Isaiah 62 uh, contains a couplet of crowns, um, a crown of splendor, which is an eteret teferet, again, the same word from pe'er, uh, of Brother Belknap's talk, and uh, a royal headdress, tsanuf uh, milcha. The imagery is fluid in this passage, with Zion at first receiving the crown and then becoming a crown herself. The phrase, Atera Teferet, is used at least one other time in a royal context in Jeremiah 13, 18, where it's used to describe the headgear of a royal couple. Uh, this term, paired with the Tzanuf Melucha, um, from Malach, a royal or leadership verb, um, suggests a royal setting and fits well into the theme of royal investiture. Uh, the next two are royal procession and acclamations. A royal procession was another common feature in kingship rituals of the ancient Near East. Prospective Egyptian pharaohs uh, circumambulated the walls of the city as part of their coronation ritual. The Babylonian Akitu festival included a royal procession that began and ended at the temple. 
In biblical tradition, King, Solomon enthrone, King Solomon's enthronement included a procession in which all of the people marched up behind him, playing on flutes and greatly rejoicing in a procession from the sanctuary to the throne. That's found in 1 Kings 140. Uh, the temple or other sacred space was a central location for such rituals. Joash's coronation is also recorded as taking place in the temple in 2 Kings 11. And it is possible that the consecration of other Israelite kings took place there as well. The imagery of a procession is evoked in the opening events of Isaiah 60. The passage includes a large assembly, um, which is comprised of Zion's sons, daughters, kings of nations, their wealth, flocks, rams, and camels, all moving together towards Zion. Zion is told to lift up your eyes around you and see. Everyone has gathered. They have come to you. The procession starts from afar off and culminates at the altar of Yahweh's temple. Procession imagery concludes the passage as well in Isaiah 62, 10. The speaker declares, pass through, pass through the gates, turn open the way of the people. The collective, directed nature of the movement here is especially striking. The imagery conveys a sense of deliberate motion towards a sacred location. Acclamations are an element less evident in other Near Eastern coronation traditions, but well attested in uh, Israelite tradition. The Hebrew Bible has at least three instances of acclamation for a new king. A trumpet was blown at Solomon's coronation while the people called out, making Solomon live. Um, a similar acclamation is described for Joash and Saul's coronations um, in 2 Kings 11 and 1 Samuel 10. Medinger notes that these instances cannot be regarded as a spontaneous expression of joy, but are part of the ceremony by virtue of their formality. In a similar vein, Isaiah 62:11 includes instructions by Yahweh for an acclamation meant for Zion. Yahweh declares the instructions to the ends of the earth. They are charged to say to Zion, Behold, your salvation has come. The declaratory nature of the instruction here is, ev is evocative of a ritual context and adds to the idea of a motif. And the last two, sacrifices and a communal meal. The existence of sacrifice and coronation ceremonies in other ancient Near Eastern culture is less commonly attested. However, the Hebrew Bible attests several instances of sacrifices accompanying coronation ceremonies. They occurred as part of the coronation ritual with Saul in 1 Samuel 9 and David in 1 Samuel 16. They also appear to have been a part of Solomon's ceremonies as well, as described in 1 Chronicles 29. And they sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord on the morrow after that day, even a thousand bullocks, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. Although there is no actual mention of a sacrificial rite in Isaiah, in Isaiah 67, the flocks and rams are on their way to the altar in the house of Yahweh's glory, which seems to imply a potential sacrificial offering. In the light of the coronation imagery found in the Pericope, it works nicely as another element of that theme. A communion or ritual meal is also associated with the rites of coronation. The food or drink utilized in the meal could have been part of animal sacrifices or an offering of consecrated rituals, and was most often enacted within the temple. This element, again, is not well attested in other ancient Near Eastern traditions, but does appear in the Israelite tradition. Solomon's coronation included drink offerings and sacrifice in abundance for all Israel, and they did eat and drink before the Lord on that day with great gladness. Um, Samuel also prepared what Patai used as a communal meal of sacrifice for Saul, just prior to his investiture. An allusion, allusion to sacrificial or communal meal appears in Isaiah 62, 9, where the grain and wine of Israel's produce is not to be eaten by her enemies, but those who garner it will eat it and praise, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sacred This communal eating and drinking in the temple could be a reference to an annual cultic offering of pilgrimage festivals, and scholars almost universally agree that Isaiah 62, 8 through 9 is, is a reference to the offering of the first fruits. Um, however, the ceremonial eating and drinking here described also fits very well with the coronation motif and works as a good allusion to the kingship rites as well. And uh, in conclusion, 
As the message of Zion's salvation unfolds in the passage of Isaiah 60 through 62, its descriptions are marked by imagery and illusion that, when viewed as a whole, create a striking motif of the rites received by a prospective regent in ancient coronation ceremonies. Viewing Isaiah 60, 62 in light of this motif adds to the splendor of the message of Zion's redemption. Not only does it convey the dramatic transformation Zion undergoes, but it adds a royal luster to that transformation. While the rites occur for both the personified woman and the inhabitants that comprise her, ultimately it is the complete concept of Zion that is depicted as receiving the rites of coronation. We have about five minutes for questions, and maybe she'll answer them. <laughs> yeah. You spoke of the mantle of righteousness and the different clothing items, and I wondered if some of the traditions we have with brides today, where they post steps, this procession comes down the aisle, and they have their faces covered with the veil, come from those, and what does the veil mean? Why is the veil always covering her face? Hmm. Well, I can't, I can't answer why the veil is always covering her face, but, but the word for mantle is, it is the same word um, used to describe some of the priestly accoutrements in Exodus. So there seems to be some kind of a connection with that. Also in the verse, you probably saw there's 61.10, where there's a, um, there's a description of the clothes, um, and uh, it talks right after that about a bridegroom and a bride. Um, the bride is wearing uh, just, the word really, it's uh, adi, so it's, it's jewels. Um, but the bridegroom, um, the verb there is a really interesting verb that a lot of people have translated as um, from, from uh, being related to the, the verb for a priest or the root that means to be a priest. So there's some, maybe some kind of connection. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> sure. So if you take what you Uh, there's definitely a lot of parallel, definitely a lot of parallel. And it's interesting that Isaiah 60 through 62 um, uses those same words that Brother Belknap talked about to Ferris, so that, that the beauty, that sort of beauty of holiness, um, a lot of really uh, significant and, um, and cool parallel in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, yes, sorry. Um, that's a good question. Um, as I was looking at it, I really I wanted it to be more chiastic. You guys are familiar with chiasm, right, where the center is the pivotal point. Then it is there are elements of, of chiastic parallelism as you go towards the middle. Um, that's that's as much as I can say is that it being the center, and it's only mentioned once. But it does seem to be that that active investiture, where you have the anointing and the um, clothing. That's sort of the active investiture, where the switch really happens. The rest are sort of peripheral, if that makes sense. They kind of lead to that. So that's how I'm viewing it. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Thank you.